I think a city that adopts an open access dark fiber model creates the greatest opportunity for a diversity in choices for the consumer and a diversity in the performance and price of services. And so that's the model that I think would be the most interesting. This is episode 261 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Dane Jasper from the internet service provider Sonic visits with Christopher this week. We've written about Sonic on muninetworks.org and how the company has used publicly owned infrastructure to bring better connectivity to Brentwood in California. In this interview, Dane offers his perspective on different types of publicly owned community networks and how those networks affect a potential partnership with a company like Sonic. Before we start the interview, we want to remind you that this is a commercial-free podcast, but it isn't free to produce. Take a minute to contribute to ILSR.org. If you're already a contributor, thanks. Now here's Christopher with Dane Jasper from Sonic. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Dane Jasper, the CEO and co-founder at Sonic. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Dane, I suspect most of our listeners are familiar with Sonic, although you serve three cities in California. Your reputation is much wider and deeper than that. Uh, but maybe you can just uh, you know, enlighten those who haven't heard of Sonic. What is Sonic? Uh, Sonic is an um, alternative access provider. Uh, so we're a, a regional competitive local exchange carrier and an internet provider. Uh, today, we, we offer uh, broadband services in 125 California cities using uh, copper technologies, uh, VDSL, pair bonding, ADSL2+, and three cities, as you noted, with uh, gigabit fiber to the home. We have about uh, a little over 400 employees and about 100,000 customers. Dane, one of the things I'm always curious about for a company like you is that, you know, there was, uh, what, uh, 8,500 uh, ISP CLEX at one point. You're one of the ones that has flourished. Many of the people that, that you grew up with, I think, uh, have gone on to close their businesses down and, and search out other um, avenues for entrepreneurialism. Uh, what happened that, um, what did you do right, I guess, is the question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. You know, it's kind of hard to self-diagnose when you're you're, you're in it. Um, but as you note, you know, we founded the company in 1994. We were a dial-up ISP, um, you know, an early user of Linux and, you know, deploying, you know, modems and, and terminal servers to provide dial-up access. Uh, we were successful at that. And, and as you noted, that was a time when there were thousands of dial-up providers. Uh, we moved on to DSL and uh, we provided... DSL both to our own retail customers uh, and also to, uh, to smaller regional ISPs around the state of California. Uh, we became a competitive local exchange carrier uh, in 2006, which is sort of late as a CLEC. You know, a lot of CLECs, yeah, they all kind of were founded in the late 90s. You know, the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act created the opportunity for competitive last-mile access and uh, most of those competitive carriers, you know, went out of business in the early 2000s. We did not become a CLAC until 2006. Uh, and again, you know, we deployed um, competitive services in, you know, 200 uh, local serving offices around California. Uh, it's a large footprint. Um, we provide wholesale access to, to a lot of other smaller service providers that are regional. 
Uh, we provide backhaul and middle mile service to uh, to uh, rural wireless ISPs and alternative access providers and small cable companies. Uh, and then uh, the latest, and really it's sort of like the fourth big thing from from dial-up to DSL to CLEC and now fiber, and uh, and that's where our focus is today. And how much do you charge for your gigabit fiber access? So our gigabit fiber to the home service uh, is $40 monthly. Uh, that is a, a uh, an introductory price for the first 12 months. Uh, after that, it goes up to $50 per month. $50? <laughs> it's, it's a great product. And uh, I should also mention that also includes a home phone line with not only all the voice features like caller ID and voicemail, but unlimited calling nationwide and unlimited calls to fixed lines in over 60 countries around the world. Uh, so it's a you know global calling for free, unlimited use phone line, plus gigabit symmetric fiber internet for 40 a month for the first year, and then 50. One of the things that I want to just mention before we get onto the main topic, which is really um, how you would like to see cities uh, doing dark fiber to encourage businesses like yours to uh, flourish. One of the things that I find interesting is that you are a strong advocate for network neutrality, which seems to fly in the face of um, uh, the common theory within the DC Beltway, which is that um, that you need to be able to charge higher prices and 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 have fewer consumer protections in order to be able to invest in high quality networks. And I'm just curious how you respond to that. I mean, you're right in noting that the majority of cable companies, telecommunications carriers, providers of internet access, uh, even wireless ISPs, um, have by and large aligned themselves against network neutrality protections and even privacy protections. And Sonic is, you know, amongst a smaller group of um, you know, I would say strongly principled internet access providers who think that regulating privacy and neutrality uh, is important. And um, I think, you know, the reasons to regulate privacy are sort of obvious, but network neutrality uh, bears some discussion. There's two sides to this. You know, one is I feel like we're in a really privileged position to be able to sell people a subscription uh, where they pay us every month to gain access to the Internet. And we don't own the Internet. We didn't make it. Uh, we didn't create all the amazing applications and services uh, and websites that exist there. And there is a risk to that innovation ecosystem if you know large monopoly, duopoly Internet access providers across the country have the ability to pick and choose winners and losers particularly amongst the emerging sector of services that require low latency, things like gaming and augmented reality and virtual reality, or which use a lot of bandwidth, you know, replacing pay TV basically with streaming video services. And uh, so network neutrality is critical to protect the Internet and the future of innovation on the Internet. The second reason that network neutrality is important for a competitive service provider is that you know whether it's a small municipality building a network or a competitive alternative access provider like Sonic, uh, both of those kinds of entities are too small to have the market power 
to extract rents out of the web services that might seek high bandwidth or low latency. In other words, if I dash off a note to Netflix and say, please send me a dime every month for every single one of my customers, I don't think that they'll respond to that. But when you know, a large nationwide cable carrier does the same and, and in fact congests the interconnection, in order to compel that payment, they successfully extract that. And that creates an unlevel playing field where you know, a large provider has the ability to create this other source of revenue. So let's talk about what we can do locally within communities. One of the things that that I've come to believe is that um, we can't just wait around for 50 new Sonics. I, I wish that we could. Um, you know, I, I, I like to see that you're growing. I like to see that Ting is growing, many of these companies. Um, my concern is they're not growing or new firms are not being created fast enough. And so, as you know, I'm a strong proponent of municipal networks for a variety of reasons. Um why don't you just uh, tell me, um, first off, what you think about local governments getting involved in this before we talk about a prescriptive approach for how they, they might want to. I think you're right in noting that there aren't enough Sonics and Tings and you know, Google Fiber type entities. We have to you know, recognize that a lot of the issues that we have in the U.S., whether it's issues around privacy or neutrality or customer service or pricing or speed or other innovations – they're all symptoms of what is effectively a failed competitive market. The majority of American consumers, if they want you know, a decent amount of bandwidth, have one choice. And you know, that is uh, resulting in many, many of the, the issues that we see here. Um, so if there were literally hundreds or perhaps even thousands of companies like ours, building innovative new networks across the country, um, you know, maybe a lot of these problems wouldn't exist. You know, to the point of municipalities building networks, um, I think that there are a lot of opportunities for good there. And, you know, I particularly rail against the idea of state laws, legislation that would disempower communities from taking local control if they're being neglected by the service providers that own infrastructure. Um, on the other side, we're uncomfortable, I think obviously, with the idea of competing with our own government. And so I think it is important to find a way to meet in the middle there, to engage in uh, public-private partnerships with neutral open networks that allow municipalities to take control and drive the infrastructure forward where necessary, but which don't completely eliminate the idea of commercial service providers serving those cities. How do you feel about uh, a Chattanooga, for instance, where um, one could still come in and build alternative infrastructure, uh, but you would be competing against the city in that case? Chattanooga is an interesting example. You know, they've, they've um, had a lot of success and, um, you know, they have successfully leveraged um, federal funding for, as I understand, an energy system modernization to create a fiber network that has benefited their community. The concern I have with a model like that is that they've created a vertically integrated triple play service provider plus the power system. Um, and so what they've traded is a 
um, a crummy duopoly for a new city monopoly. And uh, I think while that solves the near-term problem, I think it creates in the long-term real limits in what can occur in innovation, and it leaves consumers with, you know, they, they had two choices that were poor. You know, now they have a third choice. There's no telling whether or not that choice will be any good in the future. And uh, so an open infrastructure model allows for future-proofing, whether it's around customer service or technology innovation. You know, obviously, as a, a company that seeks to provide customer service and reliable technology, uh, you know, we'd like to continue to serve consumers. Right. And I think it's, I'm not going to argue with you about it. I, I respect your viewpoint. Uh, and I wanted to make sure people understood um, where you were coming from. I, I certainly think that um, Chattanooga is, a, is an outlier in that I think um, if any municipal network is going to do well in the future, it will probably be Chattanooga. But I take your point about the, the concern about creating a vertically integrated um, entity, particularly when we're talking about the internet, which has such um, potential for overlapping networks and all the benefits that that come from that. So um, I want to get a little technical. You're much more, much more technical than I am. So I'll, I'll do my best to try and keep up and maybe ask clarifying questions. But if um, it, it, we, we don't have to use San Francisco as an example, it's, it's worth noting that San Francisco is considering some kind of open network. But I'm curious, hypothetically, if you were advising a mayor on how to invest in infrastructure that would enable your business model and, and that of your rivals even even to thrive and create this platform, uh, what should they do? There's a spectrum of deployment. So at one end, a municipality can have a dig once policy, um, allow carriers to join trenches. Moving a step further, a municipality can put in conduit, lots of conduit, and then let carriers put fiber in that conduit. Moving further, a municipality can build fiber to premises, but not light it and leave that to carriers. Moving towards the vertical integration while still remaining open, a municipality can light the fiber, but have it be an open network. Uh, the Utopia network uh, in, in the cities in Utah is an example of a, an open network which is lit fiber. Uh, and then finally, you have that vertically integrated. The city is the retail service provider. The challenge is cities think that they need to go all the way to the far end of that spectrum and provide retail services. Or there's a decision to do open access, but for the city to manage the network, to, to light it. I think that misses an opportunity because the management of conduit or fiber infrastructure uh, is relatively easy once it's constructed. And a city that adopts an open dark fiber infrastructure model can drive that network wherever they would like to see it delivered, can build the amount of capacity that they'd like to see. So for example, a city might build two or three strands of fiber to every parcel, premise, or apartment. And then consumers could choose from one service provider for their television if they wanted it, another for their internet. Um, they might have a roommate who chooses a different provider for some reason. And uh, so I think a city that, that chooses to invest in infrastructure, but that adopts an open access dark fiber model, creates the greatest opportunity for 
a diversity in choices uh, for the consumer and a diversity in the performance and price of services. Um, and so that's the model that I think would be the most interesting. I think that there is a challenge with these models in terms of financing in that Many people expect the network to pay for itself, and I think that is what leads cities to go vertically integrated, whereas the open access may pay for a part of itself but is unlikely to pay for its full costs. And when you talk about building infrastructure, one of the things I would like to see is cities to recognize that we massively subsidize roads, and I think that's been good for the economy overall. It has had negative consequences. I just got back from L.A. Um, so, yep. um, but nonetheless, like the, the, the benefits from that have been tremendous because we didn't have uh, user fees paying for everything. And I'm just curious if, you've, if you would agree with me on that, that this dark fiber model may be more difficult to pay for itself and therefore requires some subsidization that we should not even shy away from but embrace. The interesting thing about it to me is, you know, you think about city utilities um, like water or, you know, if you have a municipal electric, power. In that case, they have both an infrastructure component, the, the pipes or wires, and then a consumption component, the water or the power, and those consumables have substantial cost. So this is an infrastructure component the, the pipes are part of it, but the usage is um, extremely relevant to the long-term costs. Whereas, um, setting aside for a moment maintenance, which is applicable both to a fiber network or a system of roads, once you build a road, um, cars can drive down that road and the cars consume fuel, but the city doesn't have an ongoing cost to like keep the road fueled up or something like that. It's a bad analogy, but the point is, that a dark fiber network is just a conduit of glass from one point to another, a strand of fiber. It doesn't have an operational expense for a city um, until such time as somebody breaks it. it. You know, someone puts a backhoe through it or, you know, knocks down a utility pole. There's a repair issue, and that needs to be dealt with when those incidents occur. But the infrastructure itself doesn't actually have an ongoing cost. So to your point about investing or subsidizing, the concept of homeowners paying for the infrastructure over time or the city paying for the infrastructure over time uh, is an interesting one. If you get rid of the idea of user fees and you instead just say every home is going to have a couple strands of fiber back to a central point and then offer that fiber to carriers – or rather, allow consumers who control and own the fiber to their home to decide what to plug it into. And this is this homes with tails concept that um, Derek Slater and Tim Wu uh, published around 2008. The, the idea is if a homeowner has this stub, this tail of fiber that might go miles away to the central point, and if they own that, Maybe they've paid for that over 20 years as part of property tax, if that's a funding mechanism that, that, that voters want to opt into. The idea is that you've then got this infrastructure component that goes to the central point, and service providers don't need to pay to use it because the homeowner has bought it, and it goes to the central point. This is like a, a centralized data center, a carrier hotel, where there might be many service providers. And the consumer simply says, plug me in to service provider A, B, or C. 
the service provider doesn't have to pay for the infrastructure back to the home and can instead focus on the services, lighting that fiber and delivering the lowest cost, fastest speed, customer service, et cetera. And uh, I think, you know, we haven't seen any municipalities take up a concept quite like this. And instead, there's always, well, we're going to buy this network, and then how much of it's going to get used, and who are we going to rent it to, and how are we going to pay for it? And there's a lot of question in that. And um, if instead you simply say, we're going to make an investment in infrastructure, we're going to buy this network, whether that's paid for by the municipality or paid for by the, the homeowner, I think it's an interesting concept. I, I agree, and I, I think it's um, quite similar to what Ammon Idaho is doing, although in that case they are using software-defined networking and one fiber to each home in, in order to slice it up among multiple um, service providers. And um, I think that's the, the one that comes the closest to what you're describing. Well, and as soon as you light the fiber, you eliminate the potential for innovation by the service providers, and you add a lot of complexity to the operations of the network. So if a municipality wants to build a dark fiber network that that goes from every home back to a central point, that can be engineered and constructed, and then it just sits there. There's no operational cost. It doesn't use any power. It doesn't require any network engineers. It doesn't require an equipment refresh every five to seven years. Although there are decisions that have to be made. Now, I, w- I would guess that, that given your description of the kind of network you'd like to see, you would not consider the dark fiber approach of Huntsville, Alabama, using a passive optical network uh, and working with Google, among others, uh, to sort of fit your criteria, I'm guessing. No, that doesn't, that doesn't meet the criteria because it is a passive optical network, a, a PON, which is split and, and therefore shared. And so the idea there, as I understand the way they've configured that, is that service providers would you know, buy feeder into a neighborhood and then buy a splitter, which could then serve 32 homes, say, or 64 homes, and, uh, and then construct a connection to the individual home, a drop to the home. And that, that doesn't allow for consumers to simply make you know, a plug-in decision the consumer you know, doesn't really own the fiber to their house, and Google is going to pay something per splitter, per backbone segment, per drop, per month. You know, the model that I'm suggesting is end-to-end dark fiber, one or more strands to every premise, which goes to a central point, which is owned and controlled by the homeowner. So the homeowner can say, well, plug this into that. This allows for the simplest network management. And in fact, if the consumer gets to direct what this is plugged into, there's really no need for any billing relationships between cities and carriers. So there's no billing staff, there's no billing system, there's no bad debt. (laughs) The consumer defines what gets plugged into which carrier. There's really no record keeping even. Uh, The network is completely flat and simple. And uh, so uh, as a municipality thinks about, well, how do we take this on? At the far end of the spectrum, a vertically integrated triple play provider has to build an IPTV platform, a head-end, internet access, backhaul, um, the, the central optical line terminals, the consumer side equipment, you know, Wi-Fi in the home, routers, internet of things, home security. I mean, there's this unlimited plethora of challenges and tasks that you can take on. 
And that means a lot of staffing commitment for a municipality in the long term. If a city instead builds you know, two or three strands to every home, or even just one, they've built that physical infrastructure and then it just sits there until it gets broken by a catastrophic event. So you have to have a break-fix task, which is just like a you know, water line breaks, somebody goes out with a backhoe, digs it up and fixes it. So the, the, the capability that a city needs to have, either in-house or outsourced, is repairing conduit and fiber. It's not running a network, let alone negotiating with content providers for you know how much does it cost to get MTV for the next three years. Uh, the complexity of running a dark fiber network, I think, is clearly much, much lower, and it presents the opportunity for innovation. So you mentioned uh, Amon, Idaho, uh, and you know, software-defined network and light the network. Well, now you've got a full-time network engineer who's dealing with that and running that. And then what effect person's on vacation? How do you back him or her up? Um, you've added all this complexity, and then you have a service provider who says, well, I want to deliver television using RF over glass. Or you have a television provider who can't put the content over someone else's IP network for security and rights reasons. Uh, you have a service provider who wants to deploy very low-cost, one gigabit EPON, while another service provider wants to deploy 10 gigabit NGPON2 or a 10 gigabit active Ethernet or even a faster service. And once you light the network, you, you take on the management complexity and you eliminate all the potential for differentiation and innovation in the network layer. One of the things that, that I've come to believe is is that there's not necessarily one best model. It's more that cities need to find the model that works for them. Um, and I just wanted to note that one of the things that we've seen is that cities have um, sort of moved progressively through your list of the different options cities have to take on more responsibility, in part because they were unable to identify ISPs that were willing to work with them. And so I think what you're describing would be attractive to a majority of cities that might consider building a municipal network of this dark fiber approach that would let them focus on the long-term investment. Yeah, the challenge is, is the city large enough to attract an ecosystem of service providers to use it? And um, so, you know, if the city is 300 households, if it's isolated and if backhaul to the city from major population centers is expensive, it'll be challenging to find a service provider who wants to have space in that carrier hotel and light that fiber. If the city has thousands or tens of thousands of households, I think it's um, much more viable to see a, an open, dark infrastructure be uh, competitively viable. I, I think the other side, and this is a temptation, I think that city leadership needs to resist the temptation to add complexity to the tasks that they're doing in choosing to build a network. And so if you're going to build a network and just have dark fiber available to an array of service providers, and that could be you know, incumbent operators who say, well, gosh, this fiber is bought and paid for by the homeowner, so let's just use it and stop maintaining our old coax system or our old twisted pair system or a new market entrant. But the, the temptation for a city, you know, and you see this sort of nation-building Thing occur um, in in organizations both commercial and municipal is you know everybody wants more responsibility and a bigger team and and more challenges and more tasks 
And so, you know, a city will say, well, let, you know, let's build a fiber network. Okay, well, let's light the fiber network. Well, let's deliver services over the fiber network. And pretty soon you have a team of 12 people. You know, the ongoing payroll of a city staff of a growing, growing team. And uh, I would certainly encourage leadership in communities to consider the idea instead of building a dark fiber infrastructure, which requires no operations over the top of it. Um, you know, this concept of a, a home with a tail, which is owned and directed by the consumer, creates no billing overheads, no carrier relationships uh, on a per circuit basis, and, um, you know, doesn't require a small team to manage. And in fact, you know, when the fiber is broken via some catastrophe, the way that that occurs is somebody drives their car into a pole and knocks it down, or they're digging and they dig up the fiber. You hire a third-party contractor to engage in emergency response, come in and fix that, and then the person who hit the pole or the excavator who dug it up gets the bill for that. And so this can be a very simple, simplified approach, and it can um, eliminate any, I think, long-term cost risks that exist for a city that spools up you know, a bunch of staff to run a network. I don't feel comfortable saying that I've never run into this kind of empire builder that you've run into, but in my experience, the cities that I've worked with have often been kind of reluctantly thrust into um, taking on greater responsibilities. So I just want to, you know, defend some of the cities that might be listening. Um, but I think the the final question I'd like to ask is to get a sense of, you know, you mentioned cities that have tens of thousands of households. Do you have a sense that, that a lot of those cities already have ISPs? Or are you expecting that as this infrastructure becomes available, we'll see new companies sort of learning from you and Ting in order to try and copy what you've done? You know, I, I think that there are more Internet access providers still in the market than, than folks are really aware of. And so, you know, certainly companies like Google Fiber and Ting and Sonic, people have taken notice. But there are smaller companies and, uh, you know, wireless ISPs, resellers, you know, a variety of Internet access providers scattered across the country and I think if there isn't one in that city, I think one will arise or one will come there. And the other possibility is that the incumbent cable and telephone companies stop choosing to maintain their own infrastructure and just use the city-owned or homeowner-owned infrastructure. And, uh, and then as a result, deliver faster or more reliable service. I, I definitely take your point that you know it isn't necessarily uh, nation building that's underway. It's it's uh, the perception of the necessity, um, and I would agree that in a very small community, um, it may be challenging to find a service provider who will come there. And I think key to that is that if the city's building a fiber network, and then saying, "Please come in, service providers, and for ten or twenty dollars a month, we'll sell you fiber to a home." It's challenging to make to, to prove that there's a business model there. If instead communities, members of the public, voters can make a leap of faith and say, we want to build an infrastructure, we want to buy and pay for a piece of infrastructure that we're going to own, but then the homeowner has this connection to this carrier hotel. The idea there is you're saying to service providers, um, come have some space in this data center, this carrier hotel, you know, pay for your power usage there. 
and gain access to fiber that goes to thousands of homes. And homeowners may want to connect to you. I think that flips the script a bit, and it creates, um, I think, an environment where you might see a lot more adoption and a lot more innovation. Well, I really like to see that somewhere. Um, I think it would work well, and I hope that uh, perhaps next time we talk, uh, it'll be about the lessons we're learning from it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dane. Of course. Thanks for the time, Chris. That was Dane Jasper from the internet service provider Sonic talking with Christopher about different publicly owned network models. Learn more about Sonic's network in Brentwood at muninetworks.org and learn more about the company at sonic.com. Hey folks, this is Chris Mitchell, the host of Community Broadband Bits, and I just wanted to ask you if you could do us a real big favor to help us spread this show around, and that's to jump on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you found this show, and to give us a rating, give us a little review. Um, Particularly if you like it, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating and help us to build the audience a bit. Thanks. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all the other ILSR podcasts, including Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcasts. You can access them on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed with Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 261 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thank you.